the reviews are in, and we're going to tell you what they are. He's Todd Vandenberg. I'm Rob Steele, and the news this week is stupid. I mean that. Most of we we've got several several little stories. Uh, only one of them. Is there a small earthquake on your microphone? Is that what that is? There is. I apologize. That's okay. I was just. What the hell are you doing? Oh, sounds sounds great. My desk. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask. That, Ping that's, pong in that's isolation. That's exciting part of the show, folks. Oh, geez. So, um, you know all those movies that we've been talking about that are going to come out eventually? See, I can't sure. say later this year because some of them aren't going to be this year anymore. Sure. All of those dates have moved. All of them. Do we know specifically when? No. Why? Because they're all tentative and the planet is all quarantined because uh, not everyone has injected Lysol into their into their blood system, which I do not recommend. Um, unless you're a Trump supporter, then go ahead. Because why not? So, yeah, <clears throat> this week I was going to start with, hey, look, all the DC movies, Batman, Flash, Shazam, Wonder Woman, all have got new dates. Do I know what they are? No, because it's all tentative. We don't know when this is going to end. Stay home, watch movies, enjoy yourself, have a good time, try not to go stir crazy. We do, however, have decent news out of Marvel who changed a date, but it's not exactly an upcoming movie release date. You, and you found this one, so I'm letting you do it. Somehow, some way in, in the midst of this horror show that it's 2020, we got good news. All along, Netflix, Netflix, of course, had had the Marvel shows. Some amazing shows like Daredevil, like some Jessica not as Jones, amazing shows like and Iron some, Fist. And some not as amazing as Iron Fist. However, they were, once they canceled them, they were an embargo because that was part of the deal that Marvel made to license the characters is that once Netflix was done with them, they could not be taken back for two years. Long wait. Well, they've decided to change that. Yeah. Uh, no details are come have come out yet on whether it took several million dollars or a box of <clears throat> surgical masks. But however they did it, they now have the rights to use all of those characters that they had licensed to Netflix. I didn't get it. don't remember what the exact date was, if it's as of like today or May, but it is definitely sometime in May. So not that any production has started yet anyway, so it doesn't matter. But by the time they do return to production they will be able to use Matt Murdock, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, all those characters, which is fantastic news because, of course, rumors are very heavy that Spidey, when Spidey 3 does finally come out, that there will be some legal issues involved, which would make sense because he's been accused of murder. <clears throat> and so either he's going to be on trial for that or he'll be suing J. Jonah Jameson. Woo, what a fantastic return that was for libel. Whatever the situation is going to be, he's going to have to lawyer up. Who is the best known lawyer in comics? Matt Murdock. And Kevin Feige has been totally on board for, I don't know, years now, saying that he loves Charlie Cox as Daredevil. So the chances of this being recast are basically zero. So we will get an awesome version of daredevil as like the correct version. And it's highly likely he's going to be in Spider-Man three. Of course, they're not going to give anything away. Maybe it won't happen, 
that's okay because they have the rights to the character. By the time they start production, the rights to all those characters are back in Marvel's hands. And yes, that does include Punisher. And there have been lots of rumors about where Punisher is going to pop up. So a, a glimmer of sunshine in the gloom of 2020. I mean, that's just awesome, awesome news. Because if they'd had to wait until November, that would have pushed Daredevil out of Spidey 3, other than maybe a possible cameo or something. So again, doesn't mean he's going to be in it but they'll absolutely be able to use him as a full supporting character. And that also ties into the possibility of seeing She-Hulk because, you know, lawyers. So I think that's just terrific news. Finally. I like the idea, but we still can't tell Tom Holland this because then he'll leak everything. (laughs) It could be where it came from. He might have been, he may, he may have been the one who sent Netflix the box of surgical masks and said, dude, can we work something out? Because, you know. But it was really just webbing. It was webbing. Because it is, and we talked about this before, but I'm still fascinated by the fact that Tom Holland himself was personally involved in the fact that Sony and the MCU got back together again. That he made phone calls himself, pleading that Sony sign the deal and extend that deal. Not saying that that was the final thing that made it work, but pretty impressive when an actor like so badly wants things to get together again and says, hey, we really got to make this happen. Probably he just told them he would leak the news about every upcoming production ever if he, they didn't do it. And so they said, okay, fine. <laughs> because they knew he would because he can't stop himself. And that's true. Actually, speaking of things that have gotten leaked, and I think this has to be a, a leak, the uh, the Hunger Games. <clears throat> For those of you who thought we were done with this crap, I mean, this wonderful, wonderful series, um, there's going to be a Hunger Games prequel movie whenever the coronavirus is over, if it is, maybe. Now, the thing about this uh, the story that I, I don't really care for is that it has to do with the Hunger Games. No, um, is that <laughs> is that the book that this is supposedly based on isn't going to come out for another month? And yet they've already got you know the movie rights and we're planning the movie. You know what? Maybe the book comes out and it's written in crayon and it really uh, it sucks. Why don't we wait and see how the book does for? I mean, it's not like you know, Harry Potter had people lining up to get the next Harry Potter book, camping out at mid. People camped out at midnight on the army base in Darmstadt, where I was at the time, to get the next Harry Potter book. That's a yes. bit ridiculous because you've got guys in camouflage waiting yes. for this Harry Potter book. I was... I, we didn't get that crap for Hunger Games. <laughs> I'm just saying. No. It'd, it'd be, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I'm sure they've got advanced galleys, and they can, and hopefully it's by the same author, which, whether you like the Hunger Games or not, is like it would be kind of important to have the same take on it. So yeah. that all being said, yeah, it's not exactly Harry Potter, but the films were immensely successful. So, Well, the <clears throat> last couple... Not as much. The first one was huge, and then they all went downhill. As yeah. happens so often, <coughs> Star I'm just Wars. Saying. <coughs> but 
But uh, speaking of going downhill, David Lynch is in the news this week. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure why. <laughs> because th- th- this is the le- one of the least intelligent stories I've, I've seen in, in quite a while. The headline was, David Lynch has no interest in the new version of Dune. Because this is a slow news week, folks. Um, yeah, the only reason he might would be because he directed the 1984 version that uh, some people love and some people go, what the hell was that? I haven't found anyone who hates it. I have found a lot of people who go, I don't know what that was. <laughs> because it, it is a weird take on the movie. And that's fine. But, David <clears throat> But he has no interest in the new version of Dune. Who who cares? Why would he? I mean, it's kind of like Humphrey Bogart isn't going to go see the new version of Casablanca. Well, it's because he's dead. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he doesn't care. You know, it, similar vein going on there. That Since you mentioned Humphrey Bogart. Yes. And <clears throat> one of the classic movies of all time, The Maltese Falcon. That movie had been made twice before. Not once, but twice before. And Turner Classic Movies, a fantastic source for all films, let alone old classic, older classic films, was running a couple of them. Well, the, the better known one is called Satan Met a Lady. And I watched it like 1937 or something. So they remade it just a few years later, which is kind of bizarre. Until I watched Satan Met a Lady and realized why they remade it. Because holy cow, is that a terrible, terrible freaking movie. It's almost, it's like, <laughs> It's 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 a comedy thriller with actors who are not funny with a script that is not good. So <laughs> the Maltese Falcon, which is an absolute classic detective mystery film, very suspenseful on the same property of just, Jesus, something that you might see on, let's see. Hmm. What, what cable channel is out there that, oh, Lifetime, except a funny version of some horrible Lifetime crap. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, sometimes it's really good when they reboot movies. Actually, you know, that actually leads into my, my I actually guess both of my reviews this week. That's Woo-hoo! right. I've got two. And in both of them, yes, they're both animated and one of them started off not as animated. Uh, back in, what, 1966, I suppose, there was a little show called Star Trek. <laughs> and despite the opening credits that said our five-year mission uh, that only lasted three years in the series, it got canceled. Yes. But it came back a couple years later as Star Trek the Animated Series, which, honestly, it picked up where the old series left off. With a majority of the cast. I feel bad for Walter Koenig. I saw a documentary on this. They said, we can't afford to bring Chekhov back. I'm like, of all the people, you got Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Scotty, Sulu, Nurse Chapel. But can you get this lawnmower to stop going behind my house right now? (laughs) No, we can't do that. Well, Nurse Chapel was cheap because that's the wife of Roddenberry. So, you know. I'm sure she. Yeah, I apologize for the lawnmower. That's he That's mowed fine. twice this week. The prick. So anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, Star Trek. The it it did 
tried to do years four and five of the original five-year mission. But a lot of people discounted it because it's animated. And I got to say, you know, the there is an advantage of doing this animated in that it's going to cost less to do the special effects. The aliens, for example, are going to look like everybody else quality-wise instead of going, oh, that's William Shatner and that's a guy in a rubber mask. Right. Everyone looks the same. It's it's wonderful. Um, I mean, sometimes you get alterations to things that you know, they, they, where they change the appearance and it doesn't work. I'm going to bring up the examples of the new NFL uniforms for the Los Angeles Chargers and the Atlanta Falcons in that, oh, look, it's shirts with the same freaking colors. You changed the font. That's not a big thing. <laughs> and the changes are irrelevant for this. <clears throat> I thought the changes were brilliant because the stories, they're just as good. They're a bit shorter because they only have a half hour slot to fill on Saturday morning. But the special effects, just the same. The acting, just the same. Take that for what it is, because the acting, in some cases, wasn't as brilliant as it might have been if Shatner hadn't gone to that school that over-taught ellipses I'm just saying so well done thank you thank you I'll be here all week because I'm quarantined yeah the uh, the show was actually really good and worth watching <clears throat> now I did find out when I was prepping some stuff for this review it's not canon anymore and I really have to figure out why why it well okay I have yet to figure out why that's crazy. Um, so, yeah, watch them anyway. They're just as good. Yes. But in a similar vein to this, where you've got the original and it looks a bit different, Thursday, that's right, this past week, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex finally got season number three. Uh, it's now on Netflix. And no, this is not the movie this is the TV series from 2002, 2000, through 2005, I think, because some of them got delayed. Uh, now, the thing about this is the original version was traditionally animated with the occasional CG effect thrown in, but it was traditionally animated. This is all CG, and it looks like one really massive video game cutscene. Now, it's a really well done done cutscene but you know it, it's still kind of not quite the same quality hmm. but the stories are there and that's the important thing for this series um, and now as far as the story goes it's about 15 years later now technically it's only 14 since we last saw our heroes but that's okay and most of the team uh, is in California instead of Nihama, Japan. Now, bear with me. I have not seen the entire series yet. Uh, I've gone through whopping two episodes as of this recording. So, I haven't quite figured out why they're in California yet, 
completely. I've got hints. They're all f no longer part of Section 9 in Japan. They're freelancers, like they were apparently before. And near as I can tell, they're trying to save some one percenters, which has the same term uh, as we do now, who live on a hill. <laughs> okay, fine. Except for Togusa and Aramaki, who are still in Japan, trying to put Section 9 back together under the rule of a new Prime Minister of Japan, who is blonde, pardon, and American, hang on a minute, and he's from, he's from California. Ah, that's where we get some tie-in stuff. I suspect it's going to get weirder as we go along, because it's Ghost in the Shell. It had some weird crap that went along with it. But that's one of the reasons it was such a good series. So I have to find it weird because it's weird and it's great, except for finding it specifically. I hope they fixed this because it came, like I said, it came out Thursday. I've been looking forward to it. So I turned on Netflix and I searched for Ghost in the Shell and it didn't come up. What the hell? This is your series. You made it. Why isn't it there? I, I got Star Trek. Star Trek came up, did not get Ghost in the Shell. I had to search for it by searching for 2045, which is part of the title now. It's Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex 2045, as opposed to before when it was technically 2030, but not part of the title. Hmm. And I do not want you to confuse this with Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> because that came up as well before Ghost in the Shell, which is exactly what I'm looking for. So it's on Netflix. It's worth seeing, provided you can get your search engine to work correctly and find it. I'm going to recommend it, like Star Trek, which I haven't been able to find on a streaming service yet. But it's available for DVD on Amazon, so knock yourself out with that. And, and I have not seen the new Ghost in the Shell series, so I can't speak to that. But as far as the animated version of Star Trek, in some ways it's better than the original series. And it's exactly because of what you said, Rob. Because of the production, because it's you can make aliens look more like aliens instead of people. Uh, you can have big aliens. Star Trek spent a ton of money making those series. I mean, that's exactly why it was canceled. It wasn't that it wasn't popular; it's that it cost a hundred thousand dollars an episode in sixty something. Sixty. This this is when TV shows would spend maybe fifteen or twenty thousand dollars an episode. You know, to to film. Mannix or Canon or, you know, the other stuff that CBS was running. Dragnet. So I think Dragnet, they spent about a buck 98 and a cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> but, and Dragnet's highly entertaining. It so is. it's a ton of money back then. So to be able to animate it, and like you said, I mean, they had a lot. DC Fontana was still involved. She, I think she was like the script supervisor for the original show. Yep. Uh, they were all there. So the only difference is it's not live action, it's animated. And yeah, by all means, don't let that put you off because the stories were, they, they weren't like kiddied down at all. No. They were the same, same type of stories. Really, really good series. Just an excellent show. I think a lot of people were turned off by the, and I realize this came, came later, but the He-Man style of animation. Yeah. And the animation uh, style is not you can, great. You can tell what's going to move in it because it's slightly oft colored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the style, the animation itself, not great. But again, it just takes you a couple minutes to get into the story because it's you hear the voices that you're used to. They're saying the kinds of things that you expect them to say. They're compelling stories. Yeah, it's a great, great series. 
I also went back to the past. I mean, there have been tons of new material coming out, you know, like the new <clears throat> the new series, uh, Ghost in the Shell. But you were talking about a series that came out in the late 70s. I went back to a couple things. One, a movie that uh, came out about five years ago, but it's about a movie that was attempted to be made in 1974. So I'll kick off with that. You mentioned David Lynch and why David Lynch would pay no attention to a new adaptation of Dune. Well, David Lynch ties into this because, as you said, he made the 1984 version of Dune. Someone tried to make a a version of Dune 10 years before that. And the movie I watched is all about that attempt. It's called Jodorowsky's Dune. So a Chilean director, Alejandro Jodorowsky, very avant-garde, very weird uh, stuff that he put out there, wanted to make Dune. He'd never read it, but he had friends who told him, oh, this is fantastic. This is the kind of thing you have to do. So then he learned more about it, and he thought, I have to make this movie. So he was absolutely on, this was his life project. Even though he was young at the time, this was his thing. He's absolutely had to make the movie Dune. So this film, again, called Jodorowsky's Dune, came out in 2013. This is the story of how he was going to make Dune and how it never happened. It is absolutely fascinating, uh, the -the behind-the-scenes details of at least how this movie was going to be put together. He he wanted an all-star cast, I I mean, in everything, in production design and set design. Here are the names of the people that he got involved for set design. Uh, Mubis, the French artist, uh, the best segments of the movie heavy, heavy metal, the ones that look really, really cool. He's the artist who created that. Um, so Mubis, uh, just fantastic designs. Just Google it and you'll see. He's like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. So he is one of the designers, visual designers, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dan O'Bannon. You may recall that name from, oh, I don't know, Alien. He was involved. This is, again, before Alien. And then a guy named H.R. Giger. Oh, wow, I really like his illustrations. Again, this is before Alien. So these are just three of the people he is involved in designing the look of the film. And as far as the look of the film goes, they storyboarded. You know, typically, very often especially directors who work in action, they'll create storyboards so they can see what the film looks like before they shoot it. Uh, Hitchcock, certainly wasn't the, Hitchcock certainly wasn't the first, but he was one of the one early proponents of this. They storyboarded every scene, 5,000 scenes. There is a book. There are at least two versions of this book, two copies of this book. That is the book Dune. There's the film in book form. And it's all these sketches, uh, and a lot of them are just rough sketches of, of what it would look like. Several are more detailed, very detailed illustrations. The The ship design, is it, the character design is just fantastic in this. So we have the look of the film. Now we come to the acting. He decided that he absolutely needed for, <clears throat> excuse me, for the character of Paul, he decided to cast his own son, which is kind of like, mm, that's kind of strange, <clears throat> except he's 12 years old. Fits. Which is about right. Which is right. He then decided to 
correctly portray the role, he would have his son train in martial arts for two years, 40 hours a week, for two mm. years. They interview, they interview his son um, for, you know, for this documentary. And you would think is like, there might be, wow, you kind of did a weird number on my life, dude. It's like, but he really loved it. He, he's still an actor. He's not a well-known actor, but it, that turned into his, his gig. He's an actor. And, and you think about it, it's like, no. So basically he got to learn how to sword fight and kick people and all this kind of stuff. And he did it for two years practicing. So his father now says he regrets it because now he realizes that was really short-sighted. Sounds cool with it. So kind of kind of dedication to the craft. Uh, he also decided that he needed Mick Jagger. He's like, I got to have Mick Jagger. And he just happened to see him at a party, and Jagger starts walking towards him. And apparently Jagger heard this, and Jagger said, yes, I will do this. No, no discussion about what was going to happen. He also wanted Orson Welles to play Baron Harkonnen, which is fantastic because, Ooh. you know, yes, exactly. Uh, Wells was at the peak of his, uh, let's say, gastronomic powers at this point. He was probably tipping the scales at about 400. And Wells at that point was pretty reclusive. He wasn't wor really working because, you know, that's uh, just what happened with Orson Wells. But he thought Wells would be fantastic. And, of course, Wells was just a terrific actor. So it wasn't just because, oh, he's chunky. I mean... Orson Welles would, uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't avoid saying it, would add a lot of weight and gravitas to the role. So. <clears throat> Insert rim shot here. Yes, he contacts Orson Welles through, and Orson Welles just says no, no, repeatedly says no. He finds out where his, Welles is living in Paris at this time. And this is mostly working, despite he's Chilean, he's working mainly out of Paris. He's bringing fine people in all over the world. So he finds out what his favorite restaurant is, and he tells Orson Welles that, oh, so I understand this is your favorite restaurant. Welles ate lunch there every day. It is, yes, yes, it is. said, if you uh, work in my film, I will hire that chef to cook for you every day. I've already talked to him. It's already done. Welles immediately agreed. <laughs> so now he has Orson Welles. He wanted Salvador Dali to play the emperor. The what? yes, Salvador Dali. He wanted Salvador Dali to play the emperor. The <laughs> illustration in the book, uh, the emperor has Salvador Dali mustaches, but he has two sets of them. Because oh, Dali would love that. Dali would have loved that. Dali was not interested initially. Uh, then eventually he said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it, but I have to be paid the most money of any of any star. I have to make more money than anybody." And he's and he's thinking. I can't afford to do this. This is crazy. How can I get out of this? And Dolly says he wants $100,000 an hour, which is pretty good money in 1974. It's pretty good money now. Yes. And f so he thinks about it, and he, and he talks to, uh, I can't remember who he talked to, but so, you know, someone else on the team, his producer, he talked to his producer, and said, we don't really need the emperor in the film that much. He says, yeah, we don't. So he agreed. He figured out that they could use the emperor for, and they needed him for at least three minutes. So obviously it turned into a cameo. No more than five minutes. So he told Dolly he would pay him $100,000 a minute for the time that he appeared in the film. Not for work, but for $100,000 $100, a minute for running time. 
Dali immediately agreed. So now he has Salvador Dali, although he's only going to be in the movie for like three or four minutes. So th this keeps on going on and on and on. And now they're shopping the book because they finished the book. They're shopping it to the major Hollywood studios because this is not going to be an independent production. He knows they need some serious yeah. cash. They've got $10 million uh, so far, not like in the bank, but they've got that committed. He figures they'll need a $15 million budget to make this movie. Pretty big budget for 1974. To make Dune the way he wants to make it, probably not nearly enough, which is what all the studios said. Right. So he keeps on getting turned down and turned down. And so he's getting more and more frustrated. He went on and made a few other films later. Uh, Sante Sangre is probably the best known movie he's made, which is a completely weird, bizarre horror movie about a guy who is committed to the blood cult that is armless mother in her circus runs. So there you go. So the big reveal at the end of this movie is the real reason that the studios turned uh, him down and I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is off the episode uh, once we're done, but you really need to watch this movie because it is Post -pro. absolutely fascinating. Jodorowsky's Dune. I mean, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen about making movies and because it's into the mechanics of how, at least how this particular director pulled the project together. Um, and these stumbling blocks that can that can uh, fall in, that can fall in the path of actually making something good, not the least of which, and I should say by clarify, well, let me clarify that absolutely the biggest stumbling block was this guy's vision, his own vision himself, and I'll get into the specifics later. But Jodorowsky's doing fantastic. It is available on lots of different streaming services. You have to rent it. It's like three bucks. I mean, come on, you can't even go to Starbucks. So go ahead and just. Rent the movie, stay home. The other movie I'm talking about, nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but I, I like war movies. And there's there's been this, uh, the great white whale of war movies uh, called The Big Red One. Movie came out in 1980 by Samuel Fuller, who is one of the best known directors of war films. Uh, he was a combatant in World War II and carried that with him all his life. Excellent filmmaker, but he did a lot of war films, which just to kind of show his war films are all very personal and they all show how it impacted the soldiers. It's not about big battle scenes. It's about what the battle scenes do to the person, which is a really excellent take. So the big red one was his magnum opus. This is, this is the, the mother load of all the, his, the culmination, right, of his career. So this is based on the big red one division Fought in World War II, starred in World War I, stars Lee Marvin. Now, this stars Lee Marvin in 1980. Lee, Marvin, Lee Marvin's a little long in the tooth because he was a World War II veteran, so he's getting up there in years. Uh, he looks it because, you know, he's older, oh, yeah. but he's fantastic. Lee Marvin is an excellent actor, and at no point do you look at him and think, it's like, man, this guy's too old for this stuff. I mean, he's, he's terrific. Uh, has an interesting cast. Also has Mark Hamill. Now this came out in 1980. This is after Star Wars. This is right this in the middle of Empire Strikes Back. Exactly the same year Empire Strikes Back. So Mark Hamill already had quite a bit of notoriety at this point. So he's already pretty well known. Um, a few other actors, not as big as Mark Hamill, but I. 
the thing about this movie it came out in 1980, but this, but it was really long in the studio as studios tend to do cut a lot out of it. Uh, and by saying it was really long, it's about two and a half hours long and they cut nearly an hour. Ouch. So obviously that's a drastically diff- different film, drastically different film. So 25 years later, some folks get together and say, you know what? Uh, we kind of want to see the movie that he actually filmed. So they put it back together. So in 2005, the big red one, the reconstruction was released and they restored all of that to it. And it came out <clears throat> at uh, various film festivals, won a lot of awards and I have not seen the original release because I was waiting for this. And so I can't compare it to the original release. But I can say that from what I've read, I know what some of the scenes are that were put back in. Is like it really needed those scenes because it really fleshes out the story. It starts out in World War I. Lee Marvin's still looking pretty old because, you know, he's, this was 1980. And he's a soldier in World War I. And he's just isolated. One German soldier comes up, the soldiers yelling something at him, just empty-handed, and Marvin kills him because it's war. Marvin finds out uh, a few hours later, armistice had already been signed. He killed the guy four hours after the war was over. So he just he just deals with that. I mean, you know, understandably, how would he know? The guy was telling him it was over. Yeah, the guy was telling him the war was over, but he didn't know what he was saying. He killed him. So he's dealing with that guilt. Fast forward World War II, and he has a group of young guys. He's a sergeant, and he's taking them to various hot spots. Uh, they hit the Normandy at some point, and so you, hit, you see the D-Day landing, uh, just as we would decades later, <clears throat> when Spielberg had his turn at it. And the reason I mentioned Spielberg, because, yeah... Saving Private Ryan is, to me, the best war movie ever made. And a lot of it is because of the way the landing on D-Day is, is filmed because it's so graphic. Because people who revel in war movies because, ooh, I want to see some action. That's not why you should be watching war movies. It's no. war movie. A war is, is horrible and horrifying. And Spielberg brought that out. Um, in, in The Big Red One... He didn't have a big budget. He never had a big budget. So the explosions aren't as well done. Uh, it's not as graphic because he didn't have the budget to do that. But it's still, you still see a lot of people dying and, you know, people who that you had related to and now all of a sudden they're dead. So it's still really compelling. Um, but you get bonded with these people, especially over the course of, actually, I think it's like two hours and 48 minutes. So you get really locked in with this with this group and they get more and more tightly knit and this core emerges as just four soldiers who manage to survive through battle after battle after battle and there are plenty of times of downtime for them as there really is in war where they're just kind of hanging out in a village and there's nothing to do right now because they've accomplished their mission they're going to chill and those scenes are are awesome too because you get the feeling of the camaraderie that's developed between these guys and that builds in when they have people come in 
because they're always having replacements and they never want to bond with the replacements because at this point they know they're just going to die. Why get invested in them, which is a terrible reality, but yeah. that would be the reality. Uh, there's an infiltrator in one point and they don't realize it. And this was a real thing. The Germans would send in people who had decent English and they would, because people are joining units constantly and they would just like sneak in and they'd have forged papers and half the time they probably didn't even look. And they just show up and it's like, okay, that's cool. You're one of us. And then later on, they would like take out the squad with they're all asleep. They find one infiltrator because he's eating in a different manner than the Americans are. And their hostess, she's a Belgian woman, they're just hanging at her house, realizes that and says something to him in German. And he kind of turns and looks and starts to respond. And then, oops. So, of course, they kill him. But now they're looking at everybody else like, oh, can we trust these other guys? So... This is not the best war movie ever made. I mean, a lot of critics say it is. Um, but it's definitely one of the most personal war movies ever made, watching these guys as they change and grow, except for Lee Marvin's character, because he done grew it up, and that's how he is. But you still learn a lot about his character. There's one scene that, which is just amazing. There's a lot of scenes that are amazing, but there's one scene where he's just been on one of these times where they're just hanging out in this village that's been liberated. And a little girl was playing with his helmet while they're eating, they're eating a dinner. And she's just kind of pulling at the netting because he's got the netting over the helmet so he can throw leaves and stuff onto it. And she brings it back to him and it's covered with flowers, covered with flowers. And it's just, it's just such an amazing touching thing. And some people might think of it as that's not realistic. And I'll bet you anything that that happened to Samuel Fuller at some point. That sounds like, it sounds like Be- a personal touch. Because it's such a bizarre thing. Why would you put that in a film? Unless it was personal. Exactly. And it's just such a touching scene. And he puts it on and he wears it. He wears it like that for a while. And then later on, there's a scene of a German sniper. who's just kind of saying, it's like, what an idiot wearing flowers on his helmet. And he fires, but he misses him, thankfully. Uh, he isn't missed at another point where he's shot. Spoiler alert, he does not die. Um and of course, then the, the squad opens up and kills that guy. But I mean, there's so many little personal moments, and that's what makes the Brigwood Run a, a, a great film. And to me, that's what makes Saving Private Ryan a great film. Uh, again, it's those personal touches, it's those links that you have with the with soldiers. It's not about the warfare and the action. So compared to other war movies, yeah, the action, the fight scenes aren't, the battle scenes aren't as big scale and epic, just because he didn't have the budget for that. But that's not what the movie's about. The movie's about those personal connections and how these guys relate to each other and how they get through it. And on that basis, it's absolutely a classic. So highly recommend. Again, the Big Red One is widely available. You can stream it. Not the reconstruction. Not yet. You have to buy it. And, and so that's unfortunate. And it's only on DVD right now, too, which is insane. So uh, it might take you a while to find it. Hopefully at some point someone will big brain this and put it out there so you can rent it. But the big red one, the reconstruction, terrific film. Not the best war movie ever, but certainly one of the best. Awesome acting, extremely personal take on war. It'll get on Netflix and you'll have to use the search engine, which will give you the big red balloon (laughs) first. Which the red balloon's really good too. (laughs) That... I just thought I'd throw that out because it, 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 <laughs> it would. It ran, this red balloon wandered through my head. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, look, four suggestions this week because 
you're still supposed to be on lockdown, even if the state you're in claims it's open like mine, which I got to say, even Donald Trump said that reopening Georgia was a stupid idea. Yeah. That's a hint, you know, but stay home, stay safe, and watch them. Captain, we're losing power in the warp engines. I think we should be leaving now. I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. Uh, and on that unusually harmonious bombshell, it is time to end. I am very disappointed. Man, we have a weird job. It's shameful, but uh, eh, it's a living. And like that, he's gone.